everyone. I'm T.D. Worthington, pastor of the Pathway Baptist Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and this is Pathlight, and we're so glad to have you tuned in to today's program and hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes of Bible study, fellowship, got some special music coming your way also. We really appreciate you being a part of our, of our broadcast uh, partnership. As a matter of fact, you can listen to this program by way of radio every Sunday morning at 10.30 on the Go Mix Radio Network. There's uh, 10 different uh, stations that you can listen to that all across eastern North Carolina. So if you've got friends that might be in uh, various parts of eastern North Carolina, they can probably find a Go Mix station to tune into. Also, if you're not able to listen at 10.30 in the morning when the program actually airs, you can check it out on the Pathlight podcast. And not only will you find this program, but you'll find an archive there of many of our past programs. Just uh, whatever uh, software or app you happen to listen to your podcast on, check out the Pathlight podcast. It should be there, and you shouldn't have any trouble at all listening to the programs or telling your friends about the program. You can also check us out on Facebook at the GoMix uh, Radio Facebook site, the Christian Bible College Facebook site, or uh, Pathway Christian Academy Facebook site. There, there's actually some others. But if you want to check that out, be sure to do so and share it with your friends here on the Pathlight, Pathlight Radio program. In just a moment, I'm going to be sharing with you a message entitled Open-Minded Christianity. Are you open-minded or narrow-minded? How do you consider yourself? Well, we're going to be taking a look at that in just a little bit to see what the Word of God has to say about us being open-minded or narrow-minded or closed-minded or whatever the case may be regarding our faith. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that, if uh, if you will. Right now, though, just before today's message, I've got a musical selection coming your way. And this is Carol Robertson to, uh, to sing for us, call through it all. I've had many tears and sorrows I've had questions for tomorrow There's been times I didn't know right from wrong But in every situation God gave blessed consolation That my trials come to only make me strong Trust in God Just 
A few moments ago, I asked you the question, do you consider yourself open-minded or narrow-minded? You you know, the modern world says that if you're open-minded, that means that by default you are, uh, you're tolerant, you're accepting, you're unbiased, you're understanding. Uh, In other words, if if you're an open-minded person, you're just a a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful citizen. You're a wonderful person, a wonderful neighbor. But on the other hand, if you're narrow-minded, then that by default would mean that you're bigoted, conservative, opinionated. You are reactionary. You're probably a racist, and you are undoubtedly intolerant. You're, in other words, you're some kind of jerk. So we know what the politically correct answer is supposed to be. We're all to be open-minded. That seems to be what is popular today. But is that always is that always a good idea? When I hire someone to do a job for me, I want him to be pretty narrow-minded. I want him to do the job as I've asked him to do it. If, if I want my house painted yellow, I don't want to come home and find it painted purple because the guy said, well, I just thought it would look better. Well, well I, yes, but I'm paying you to paint it yellow. I told you what color I wanted it. Well, well you know, you, you, you need to be open-minded about this. You, you, you know, there, there, there are other, other yellow houses in the neighborhood, and you, and you don't want yours that color. No, yes, I do. I don't care what, what someone else paints their house. That's their business, but I won't mind painting it this way. I want you to be narrow-minded. So narrow-mindedness in lesser matters, I suppose we would say, is good, but many condemn it in matters of faith and morals. 
here again, if you ask someone to do something for you, uh, you say, you know, I want you to fix my faucet, and you come home, and the guy's done a bunch of extra work that was not necessary, and and I said, well, I thought you needed a new sink and a new fixture and everything. I thought it would look better. Uh, no, that's not what I want. I want you to be pretty narrow-minded. I want you to do what I ask you to do. And if it's not going to be on the budget that I have prescribed, or if you're going to have to do something else, you need to get permission first unless I give it to you in advance. So open-mindedness certainly has a place, but narrow-mindedness also has a place. Now, when it comes to God's truth, it is not up for debate. It frankly doesn't matter if I like God's truth or if you like God's truth or if politicians or educators like God's truth. It doesn't matter if the people who embrace uh, what the Bible might refer to as perverted lifestyles, it doesn't matter whether they like God's truth or not. It is still God's truth, and it's not up for debate. We don't debate that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. We do not debate the virgin birth. Well, I'm not going to debate that. I'm not going to debate the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ because it, for me, is a settled fact. We don't debate the fundamentals of the faith, nor do we debate that sexual perversion is sinful. We believe that Jesus meant it when he said, I'm quoting now from John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I believe that. That's pretty narrow-minded, isn't it? Jesus says, I'm not one of the ways. I'm not one among many. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man's going to come to God except through me. If you try to come some other way, you're not going to make it. You're like a thief and a robber. You're just not going, going to make it. So let's face it. Christians are supposed to be pretty narrow-minded when it comes to God's truth. We believe that God has spoken his word that his word is settled and it is to be obeyed and not debated. Writing to the church at Pergamos in Revelation verses 12 through 17, our Lord confronts a congregation that had become too open-minded for their own good. Tragically, many churches today find themselves in the same position. What do we learn when we read this letter from Jesus to the church at Pergamos? Well, I think we learned several things. May I mention first, no church can live on its past. This church at Pergamos, according to the word of God in Revelation chapter 2, had a great heritage, a great history. During the days of intense persecution, a man from the church by the name of Antipas had paid the ultimate price for his faith. It says in Revelation 2.13, thou, thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days, days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, I, I don't know a whole lot about Antipas any more than is mentioned right here. But what matters is that Jesus knows this man, knows his name, knows his testimony that he would not give in to the pressure around him. And though forgotten on earth, he is remembered in heaven. No church can live on its past. Many great churches today have a heritage of a marvelous past. 
Back in the days when revivals were rampant in the Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Baptist Church and, and other churches that I could talk about today, when there was a movement of the Spirit of God and Christians were revived and souls were saved and, and, and we got a wonderful history. I personally am a Baptist. And that, that, that doesn't make me perfect. What it does mean is, you know, I've read the Word of God and I just decide the Baptist faith is, is the closest to, to the way I interpret the Word of God. And you are as God is perhaps leading you to be. But, but I'm simply acknowledging I'm proud of the heritage of the Baptist church. That for years and years, many of those wonderful churches have preached the uncompromising Word of God. They have seen a movement of the Lord. They've seen the salvation of souls, the strengthening of families. They've seen all that in the church. But no church can live on its past. And tragically today, and I'm saying this as a Baptist, okay? I'm not putting down any other group. I, I'm a Baptist. I'm talking to Baptist. Tragically, many Baptist churches are but a mere shadow of what they used to be because many no longer preach the Word of God. They no longer stand on the morals of the Word of God like they used to. They, they no longer preach, so, so to speak, the book, the blood, and the blessed hope as they did for so many years. No church can live on its past. Your congregation may be bigger, your buildings may be more beautiful, and your budget compared to what it was 100 years ago may be totally astounding, but that may not mean anything if you have departed from the faith. No church can live on its past. The next thing I learned from this church at Pergamos in Revelation chapter number two is no church can live on courage alone. He says in verse 13, again of Revelation two, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Again, that's verse 13. Pergamos combined a toxic mix of political power, pagan ritual, and Greek philosophy, probably mixed in with some, with some Caesar worship. Every citizen was expected to once a year offer incense and declare that Caesar is Lord, and no Christian could do that in good conscience. Thus, at Pergamos, the stage was set for all-out spiritual conflict. It's going to come because no Christian is going to say Caesar's Lord. When Jesus says that Satan has his seat or his throne there in Pergamos, he means that Satan has found a place where he can exercise diabolical influence over an entire region, a place where he can feel at home. A, fa a place where he feels welcome, a, a place where he feels that w when he speaks, people listen. Satan held sway over that city. It was a region covered with a dark cloud of evil. Now, I believe Satan still has his thrones today. And you say, well, yeah, but well, that's probably in some third world country somewhere, you know. Yeah, but I think maybe today we would more likely find Satan's throne in places of cultural influence, in the great universities, in the seat of political power, in the halls of commerce, and in the great religious centers or, or entertainment centers where prayer sometimes in these religious centers is offered many times a day, but where Christ is nowhere to be found. It's all to the credit of the church of Pergamos that despite the prevailing intellectualism and the widespread paganism, these early Christians had established a foothold in the very shadow of Satan's throne. In that battle, the believers in Pergamos had not yet yielded ground. 
Perhaps today, your, perhaps today, your church is located, so to speak, where Satan's throne is. In other words, you might feel that your city has kind of gone that way. Maybe you live in a, a metropolitan area and you feel that politically and morally your city uh, makes Satan feel welcome. That could be. Well, this church ought to be an encouragement. Ought to be an encouragement because this church, even though prevailing there, had the courage, if you will, to stand up for the Lord. They had not yielded ground. So I've said two things thus far. No church can live on its past, and no church can live on courage alone. And the third thing I want to mention, no church can live that tolerates error. In this section of Scripture, Jesus points out a great weakness of this church in verses 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, now here is the somewhat nub of the problem, I think we could probably say. Thou hast them there that hold. Do you see that? Thou hast them there that hold. I want you to forget the details for a moment. But we see in those words the weakness of this otherwise brave and strong congregation. In the name of misguided love, they refused to cast out those who held, uh, held to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There were some in the church who advocated a loose doctrine and an even looser morality in the church, and they were being tolerated. In the name of being open-minded, they held that the Christian church should be exceedingly broad-minded in its fellowship. This church ought to make men of all faiths, all level of morality, comfortable within their walls. You hold to the teaching of Balaam, uh, come on out, uh, we'll make you feel welcome, it's fine, you can fellowship with us. You hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, you, you come on out, uh, you'll be made to feel welcome, we're, we're glad to have you, glad to have you, we'll, we'll let you sing in the choir and let you teach a class. Sounds pretty contemporary to me. In their brochure, they likely said, we preach the old doctrines of the faith, we sing the great hymns of old, but if you don't like them, we will occasionally sing something else, or we'll have a separate service just for you. Or if you like to worship idols, fret not, fret not. We can accommodate idol worshipers and non-idol worshipers right here in our same congregation. You're welcome. Once in a while, we may preach something you don't like, but most of the time we'll preach and teach things that we can all agree with. We're a modern church. We're an open-minded church. Come, you'll be made to feel welcome. It doesn't matter what you believe. Yeah, we, we are to be tolerant. We're to be exceedingly tolerant. But when that is pressed too far, the church ends up with a mixture of truth and error, purity and impurity, and sooner or later, the evil tends to spread so that sin no longer seems sinful. For an example, until very recently, it would have been hard to find a Christian church that did not condemn homosexual behavior. 
It, it, it would be very rare, regardless of the denomination, regardless of where the church was located, north or south, city or country, it didn't re- really matter. You, you'd be hard-pressed to find one that, that said, this, this is fine, it's not a problem, the Bible's not against it, God doesn't care, it's okay, it's totally fine with us. We had a, as a church, a 2,000-year track record of consistency. In other words, that is simply the way it was, but no more. The end result is a church that temporarily receives both a commendation and a harsh warning from the Lord. That's what happened there. But it's temporary because no church will remain at this stage very long. Jesus says, you know, you've got some good things going on at the church, but I want to warn you, you're tolerating some stuff you, you should not. But I'm telling you, this condition is always temporary because, because you, you can't hold fast the sound doctrine while harboring those who have a disdain for the sound doctrine. You can't have a church that holds fast to the word of God when you've got everybody or a majority of people or a, or a powerful group within the church that does not believe the scriptures. In the end, the church is going to have to go one way or the other. The church is going to have to say, we're going to stick to the book, the blood, the blessed hope, and that's, that's just the way it is, or we're not, one or the other. You can't live in this divided state forever. And that, of course, brings us to the Lord's call in, in verse number 16, where he says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It would appear that Christ takes a very personal offense when his church harbors immorality in its midst. He threatens to pay a personal visit to Pergamos. You say, well, that would be good. But he says, I'm coming. I'm coming to fight against the evil teachers. I'm going to come to fight against the evil within this church. You say, well, you know, if he's coming to Pergamos, he's going to go fight the evil in the bar rooms. He's going to go and fight the evil that's going on in other places. God, Jesus says, no, I'm coming to fight the evil in the church. Now, this verse does raise an interesting question. Who exactly is supposed to do the repenting? God tells this church, says, you need to repent. If you don't come, if you don't repent, he says, I'm going to come and judge Who exactly is supposed to do the repenting? Certainly the church leaders need to repent because they've tolerated this trash. But the call must also be to the church members themselves for allowing this spiritual compromise. In the name of open-mindedness and toleration and even seeking common ground, many church members today have allowed their churches to compromise the gospel. And, and, and that's a sad thing going on today. You say, well, our church has changed because these uh, new modern young pastors are coming in and they've been educated in a liberal seminary and they're bringing stuff into the church. Well, well I, I submit that many times it's the congregations that's putting up with it. You know, if, if a man does not preach the, the, the word of God, the true word of God, and he comes in and starts compromising on scripture and compromising on morals and compromising on the fundamentals of the faith, you need to pick him up by the seat of the pants and throw him out. Hopefully you can talk to him and hopefully he'll come around. Hopefully you can teach him something. But if not, if not don't let him drag the whole church down. Don't let him drag the whole church down. And, and if you can't, can't get the 
the, the leadership of the church to do anything about it, it might be time for you to just go to another church. And I don't encourage that. I'm just simply acknowledging if your church is not preaching the word of God, you've done everything you can to get them to preach the word of God. They're compromising. Maybe it's time to get out. You say, well, I can't get out because uh, mom and daddy are buried in the church cemetery right outside the, the window here. Well, well, let me tell you something. Mom and daddy are going to get out of there just as quick as they can. We need to remember that the same Jesus who said, come unto me, also said, depart from me. So we come to the end of this solemn message from our Lord, and his words must be taken with total seriousness. And what he's telling us here is not enough to mix a little truth with error. It's not enough to have courage in the face of community opposition. We must go beyond that to say that we will not tolerate in the church those who threaten the purity of the gospel. This is certainly not a politically correct message, nor will it likely win many friends of the secular media. I'm not talking about in your community. We live in a free society. I'm talking about in the church. I'm not talking about at the grocery store where you shop. There's people there that may or may not share your faith. I understand that. But I'm talking about in your church now. It's a message we need to heed. If the church is truly to be a lighthouse in the darkness and an oasis of healing to the broken and hurting world that's out there right now, we cannot help sinners by saying that sin is not sinful. How can you help a sinner by telling him that sin's okay? Christ came to save sinners. If sin was okay, there'd be no need of Christ coming to die on the cross. Christ came to save sinners, but if the church no longer believes in sin, we have nothing to offer the world. Why should we? Why should the church embrace Christ if he saves sinners if there's no sinners around? Where sin is winked at or renamed or where the church turns a blind eye to its moral compromise, to precisely that same extent, the church commits spiritual suicide, I believe. This is the message of our Lord to the church at Pergamos. And in his message, it's also a message to the church today. To those who'd rather be open-minded about these things, let them join a social club. Just leave the church alone, okay? If you want to be open-minded about sin, there's some worthy organizations out there that honestly could do a lot of good. Why don't you go join one of them? But leave the church alone. When it comes to the message of Christ, we're far too narrow-minded for you. I'll tell you that we are, if it's a true church. And we don't intend to change. May God help us to stand strong for the gospel in this age of moral and spiritual compromise. If people call us narrow-minded, let us take this as a compliment and stay the course. Let's be as narrow as God's truth is narrow and as broad as God's grace is broad. Today we've been discussing open-minded Christianity, and yes, there are things we need to be open-minded about. Open-minded that the worst sinner on earth can be saved if he'll simply come to Jesus, but narrow-minded in the fact that he will have to come to Jesus. As a repentant sinner, he'll have to come to Jesus because there is no other way.
And with that, I want to thank you so much for tuning in to today's broadcast. We really appreciate you being with us and hope you will stay with us. Uh, join us every single time you possibly can. And again, I'll mention, if you can't tune in on the radio, check out the Path Light podcast or whatever app it might happen to be that you utilize to download your podcast and to listen to other great sermons and other great programs or, or your music or whatever it might be, the Path Light podcast podcast this program is there and there are many archives that are there also from from the past well until next time this is td worthington saying may god richly bless you as my prayer you have a wonderful and gracious week don't compromise the faith have a wonderful week as you walk and work in the service of our lord <laughs>